So how was your experience researching this case that we're telling together this week, by the yes. way? Yes. Yeah, we are. I, like, uh... <sighs> <laughs> I feel like we maybe had similar yeah. uh, experiences because we pushed recording for this. Like for four times, home, actually. Four times to give us more time with it. Um, yeah. And I... still... I, I mean, on my end, I still feel like there's just nothing. Yeah. Or there's not a lot out there. Yeah, I agree. I feel like I was really digging deep to try to find anything about this case that was just like not just Wikipedia or just like mm-hmm. a sentence here and there from, from articles that are no longer like able to be found yeah. like i bought um like a subscription to the uh, like to the archives to try to find but they don't go back that far like it's yeah. it's obviously you know you'll find out that we did this was a case from the 70s and mm-hmm. when i first brought this to you Devin, i was like oh this is a good case that we could cover together there's a lot you know it looked like there was a lot Mm-hmm. That we could split it and, you know, split the research and split the episode because we usually do that every season at some point. And we hadn't done that yet. So I was like, this is a great one. And then yeah. after like giving, I split everything up and I was like, okay, you cover this, I'll cover that. And then when I was like going through everything, I was just like, I have been researching for like three hours and I have one and a half pages of mm-hmm. stuff to write. Yeah. And I don't know where to get any of this other information. Like, it's so bad that, like, even on Wikipedia, like, you can click on the little number next to it to find, like, the article where they're getting their source from. And -hmm. it would just bring you to a blank page. Yeah. It was like, what? We talked about, like, oh, is this going to be interesting enough? Is this going to be long Mm -hmm. enough? All, all, All this stuff. And then we came to the realization that, like, the reason why we're doing this is to talk about... Mm-hmm. cases that don't get enough recognition and don't yeah. get talked about and that's exactly what happened here this, and yeah. so usually when it's a modern case mm-hmm. right you can find little local newsletters you can find facebook posts from people mm-hmm. all this stuff this was like you said was from the 70s so if there was that kind of stuff it's all sort of buried or archived and like maybe a specific researcher with a specific badge in the actual building could get to it. Yeah. But like, I don't know how we could get to it Mm -hmm. and we're not even professional media. So yeah, we don't have access to everything either. It was just really tough. And like, obviously whatever, what happened is tragic, but like just trying to find enough details to, you know, real like our goal, we tell the story on behalf mm-hmm. of the victims, but if we don't know anything about the victims, then how are we supposed to tell yeah. it? You know, so it's just, it was just really and hard. That's a f- and, and that's like central to this case, right? Is the failing of the coverage. Yeah. yeah. And we're still feeling it to this mm-hmm. day. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure like, as we talk about everything, we can like talk about more of our experience yeah. with what we found out when we get into the actual case. Yeah. But, and I want to just like, I, I didn't bring this up before, but like, if like, I'm also want to explore this theory that I have 
Um, mm-hmm. Like, and I know that we've so for what the part that I had to research, the victims that I researched, you know, there were people convicted for these mm-hmm. murders, but I don't know. I just have this weird, like as I'm read was reading through, I just have this weird feeling that this is not like a multiple person crime. Like I think I'm thinking it's more of a serial killer and I know like your mm. face right now <laughs> makes me think that you don't believe you don't agree but maybe I was also trying like just coming up with a way to like make sense of it yeah make one make sense of it and two yeah. like how these murders could happen in the same area and not be the same person right right so well you know I think before we get ahead of ourselves yeah true yes sorry let's introduce the case so this week Devin and i will tell the case of the roxbury murders Roxbury murders are also known as the stride right murders. Did you find that anywhere in your I research? saw it mentioned, but I didn't. I knew that it was like establishing stuff, so I didn't really like go into it. I don't know what stride right is. Stride right is a like from what I could find, it's like a like a a chain store. Like okay. a I, I don't want to say is it like Rite Aid or something? Yeah, like I don't want to say it's like a Walmart that seems big. But, like, I think, like, a Rite Aid, Walgreens-type place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll get into a little bit later, like, why it was named that at the beginning. Um, but the murders all took place in the Roxbury neighborhood in Boston, Massachusetts in, 19, in the 1970s. And I just want to, like, set the scene a little bit um, before we get into the uh, the murders. But... Um, so the Boston area at the time, like pretty much everywhere up until this day was enduring a lot of severe racial tension. Surprise, surprise. Um, (laughs) and so the Roxbury neighborhood and honestly, the, like the neighborhoods that surrounded that neighborhood, they were all populated mostly by Irish Americans, Italian Americans, African Americans, and you know, that area was known for that. Like I I have a, like it kind of reminds me of like, and I hate to say this because it's, I don't, it shouldn't be this way, but there was a town, like a little development in my hometown where a lot of people would like in school would call like that. And I'm not going to say the name of it, but it's like a lot of black people live there. Mm -hmm. But, 
it's not because like black people couldn't live anywhere else. It was, I mean, I didn't live there and I'm black. So, but it was because a lot of people from the city would move up to that part of New York mm-hmm. and then commute. And it was kind of like in, a, in an area where it was like easy to like catch the bus to the city and commute there. So like the way this d- was described kind of reminded me of that <clears throat> mm-hmm. where it's like, it's like unofficially known as like if you were Irish American, Italian American, African American, you moved into that area. We would have been neighbors. We would have. <laughs> great. Well, not so much for me, but you know. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, in 1974, the uh, Boston area was uh, known as most of the uh, country were in like right in the middle of the social movements that uh, started with desegregation of public schools and public places um, around that area. And desegregation led, obviously led to like riots and protests across the city. I guess white people were pissed off that they had to like co-mingle with people of color for whatever reason. Like, okay. The audacity. Yeah. Um, and this caused a lot of people on both sides of this, uh, kind of social movement to lead to a lot of injuries and a lot of deaths that, you know, were just senseless for like absolutely no reason. Um, and judge Garrity of, uh, the Boston area, he ordered that the schools and buses be desegregated. Um, and that's what started a lot of the the riots were because public transportation and people like white people who had to use public transportation didn't want to have to use the same buses as people of color oh or um ha- and schools as well because um whites did not want their kids to go to school with black people or people of color which is just outrageous but we're seeing some of that right now right with all Mm -hmm. this arguing about teaching critical race theory in school and whatever yeah white woman tearfully being like i don't want my kids to learn critical race theory and that doesn't mean i'm racist and it's like like, so what else do you fucking call it why do you yeah why not teach them that stuff because it's upsetting to them yeah like they're how the do you th- ones doing the racism. Yeah. Like, what do you think it feels like from the other side? Yeah. But that's the thing that nobody wants nobody to experience cares. something from somebody else's perspective. They only no. give a shit about themselves. So, yeah. Um, so this, you know, like I said, was just like started a lot of injuries and deaths. For example, there was a stabbing of an African-American attorney at the time. Um, a group of group of actors. African-American high school students were trapped inside their school for hours because there was an angry mob outside, like literally threatening their lives. Um, And there was an African-American football player that was brutally beaten on the street. So this is like what was going on in Boston at the time and Mm -hmm. in the Roxbury area. Um, And this leads us to January 29th, 1979, when Christine Chris Ricketts, she's 15 years old, was found on the sidewalk uh, on East Lenox Street in Roxbury. She was also alongside another young woman by the name of Andrea Fay. I'm sorry, I'm going to say that again. It's Mm -hmm. Foy. She was also alongside another young woman uh, by the name, name of Andrea Foy. 
So the Roxbury. What do you mean alongside? She was. They were both dead. On the oh. street together, they were found oh. together. Okay. Um. Uh, so the Roxbury murders, uh, previously, like I said, they were known as the Stride Rape murders, but the reason they were known as the Stride Rape murders was because of these two victims, Chris and Andrea. They were both dismembered inside of plastic trash bags that were <gasps> bought at Stride Rape. Oh. So that's why they were considered the Stride Rape murders at first, because of Chris and Andrea. And those were definitely related to each other. Yes, those like were definitely. Yeah, how could yeah. they not be? Yeah. Wow. Um, and this was the start of the Stride Right slash Roxbury murders um, between January and May of 1979 when 11 black women and one white woman were murdered within several miles of one another in the Roxbury na- neighborhood, which is south of, uh, on the south side of Boston. The uh, second, or third, I'm sorry, the third um, victim was Gwendolyn Yvette Stinson. So this was January 30th, 1979. She was reported missing, and she was eventually found in a yard near her home in Dorchester. She was 15 years old. Um, They said, you know, this was like, again, and notice that I don't know about Devin's Uh, research but for me it was really hard to find like specific quotes from family or like just describing the women like it was just like most of the time it was like one sentence that you could find yeah if that like it wasn't even like there's just nothing to be known about these women and it's so hard i found i think i i don't know if i said this already so excuse me if i'm repeating myself but i found an image from the Boston Globe mm-hmm. of a headline that said, like, sitting down with the victims' families. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, finally an article about it. I could not find the article anywhere. It was yeah, it was like a like clipping. screenshotted a clipping. Yeah. Could not find the article. Yeah, I didn't. I, I saw that too, and it was just the beginning. I did find one that was like a screenshot of some sort of article with like, I think it was like six six of the women, but they it was like little like thumbnails it looked like of their photos. Mm-hmm. So this obviously came out after before the rest of them because like I said, there was eleven women right. or twelve um, women, but the article was so because it was a screenshot of maybe even like something like it just like you could not read it. You couldn't read what the words said. Like you could get certain things out, but like other than that, it was just like you were, I was going to be guessing like what it was actually saying. So again, there's just like not much about these individual or, you know, victims, which is Um, really, really sad Sad, yeah it's so sad and it just like uh, such a big part of why we do this is to humanize people because Mm -hmm. we saw sort of a gap in the true crime space where you kind of forget that somebody died a lot of the times listening to these cases because you're very interested in um what happened or how it turned out how they found out the clues which i understand and like I'm not saying that we're perfect all the time, mm-hmm. but like this one was per- 
particularly hard for me because there was nothing. Yeah. Like it just felt like a series. Yeah. There was just felt like a series of names. Yeah. That names next to a date and like what happened to them. And that was it. And it just feels so like, I feel so empty with this. Like that's the only word I can describe, like how I feel about and this is like I, I think this one is the only case I've ever felt like that over three seasons that we've done so far where I felt like yeah, just I like so just even the unsolved cases, at least mm-hmm. there's I think generally the families fight harder in the unsolved cases. So there is more to find out about the people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this one, uh, this one got under my skin yeah yeah and yeah. I, and it's like I'm, I'm i'm also like not sure like what it is that i'm you know wanting from this but i think it I think feels the like thing slippery is, yeah it feels like i'm i can almost like grasp it but it's like mm. mist yeah in my hands it's very hard um, but the reason I was saying that was because I did get, I did find a little cl- like sentence of, uh, you know, who Gwendolyn was. And I'm assuming this came from one of her family members, but they said she was a lively young girl who was saving up to go to gymnastics camp. Oh. Yeah. Um, and she was one of 10 children. Wow. I was like, that was a crowded house. Yeah, really? In Boston? <laughs> In Boston, yeah. I was like, whoa. Um, so I was able to find that out about her. Um, and she, her body, like I said, was eventually found near a yard uh, near her home in Dorchester. Um, then that brings us to February 2nd, 1979, when 25 year old Karen Prater was found dead um, and uh, near Franklin Park. Mm-hmm. Um, I found a little bit about her as well. She was an unemployed mother of two. Um, and the day of her death, apparently she was headed to her grandfather's house. He was 75 years old. His name was Charles Prater. And she would uh, go to his house to, to bring him to the store so he could go shopping with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, she was found beaten and stabbed to death and left behind a wooden area near a hospital. She was the fourth victim Mm -hmm. found, um, in the Roxbury area. Um, and then that leads us to Wednesday, February 21st, when 29 year old Daryal, Anne Hargett was found strangled and bound in her apartment in Wellington. She was a choir singer and a social worker. Um, And I found a little thing about her where they said she was described as quiet and very serious to the people that knew her. So, Mm. but that seems like such a social worker facade, you know, like it just, you're just gotta be like, you have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, then that leads us to Desiree Denise Etheridge. She was 17. She was found beaten with a shattered jaw. She was also burned to death, which I'm like, oh. God, was she? Oh. I think she was alive when that happened. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. 
on uh, this was on Fellow Street in Dorchester on Wednesday, March 4th, 1979. She was a part-time student who lived uh, on the same street as um, Gwendolyn Yvette Stinson. Mm-hmm. So all of these cases are like so literally close. so so close together and within weeks of each other. Yeah, and her body was found 100 yards away from the school where the bodies of Chris Rickett and Andrea Foy were were discovered. <sighs> this is why I'm like are you sure this is like a different person? I'm curious because I want to know how long between each Mm -hmm. victim there was because mine is like there's three that are like exactly two weeks apart Mm -hmm. um okay so mine are january 29th 1979 that's when christine and andrea foy were found and the next one is January 30th. Oh, the next so day. So the next day. Oh, jeez. But that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that's that's just when they were found. That's just when they were found. That doesn't mean that she they right. could have they for all well, I get a little bit into um and I I know that my, this might be a little flip-flopped because I'm going to talk about the convictions that were um that were made from my six girls and then you're going to tell about your victims and then probably go into your conviction. So they will be like half and half, but like I go into at one point, like what actually happened to uh, Christine and Andrea because there was a conviction in their case. And um, I also go into a little bit of Karen Prater's case because there was a conviction in her case as well. Okay. Um, and I just, for everybody, you know, listening, just bear with me, um, because I did find these court documents at the last minute, like literally, yes, like a couple hours ago, I found two documents from the court cases. And it's just, if anybody's seen like court cases, they're just really hard to read and really hard to like pull information from. So a lot of the, uh, what I'm going to say from those court documents are like directly from the document that I just copy and pasted. So just bear with me in that sense. But, um, I, 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 as this unfolds and as we talk about it, Devin, we can actually maybe pinpoint what day it seems, you know, yeah. between, between the ones that I do know information about based on the convictions. Yeah, I'm looking now at some of them and, there's not actually dates on the last few. Okay. Because they go to the source material that they link to mm-hmm. is gone. Oh, okay. So I don't know if we'll be able to, like, get a pattern or anything. Mm-hmm. Well, this... So then the, for, between um, Gwendolyn... Mm-hmm. Gwendolyn was found... It just says she was eventually found... It doesn't say, like, mm. she went missing on January 30th, but, and her body was eventually found. Like, another thing, like, where's the coroner's report where it shows, like, time of death? Like, w- none, I could not find any of that. No. There's a little touch because of that you know in the like court documents. Box. Well, this is why, 
I mean, listen, let's get. Yeah. <laughs> I was getting ahead of myself, but I'm just saying, I feel like if there was, you know, the coverage, if there was, mm-hmm. if it was treated like it was one perpetrator, it would have been tr- like mm-hmm. handled so much better. And like, if this is the way that these cases, which are related because mm-hmm. of this short, oops, sorry, I bumped my microphone. But these cases are related because of the short span of time and their geography. Like, they're all within, like, a block of each other. Yeah. No, they're not, the records and everything aren't treated as they're related. No, not at all. So, they're all, I'm sure they're all somewhere in a moldy box that hasn't been opened in 30 years. Yeah, or doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah, like, there's not, like, I was, like, I was hoping for like some sort of attention grabbing investigation that went, you know, went a certain way that, you know, made it clear that these weren't related, but there was no, there wasn't like nothing that I couldn't find. I'm sure that the police did something, you know, at least in the, even in the worst cases, police do, do something. Yeah. So I, yeah. I talk a little bit about um, the social activism side of it in my mm-hmm. part. So okay. that's, but again, yeah. like in terms of police work, I didn't see shit. Yeah, I I didn't either. Other than that court document, which I'll get into and read a little bit from, mm-hmm. which, which kind of outlines a little bit of how they were able to convict these two men. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so then after Gwendolyn was reported missing, three days later, Karen uh, Prater uh, was murdered. And then um, that's 26 days later. That's when Daryl Ann Hargett was found strangled. Um. And then that would be about three weeks later would be Desiree Denise Etheridge, 17, who was found beaten with the shattered jaw. Um, and she was discovered um, in the same area as Chris Rickett and Andrea Foy. Um, and she lived on the same street as um, Gwendolyn. Mm-hmm. So those are... The first six victims of the Roxbury murders. Um, And I'm going to get into the convictions. So this would be Chris and Andrea's trial. Um, I found in uh, the court documents, um, there was a lot of stuff redacted, obviously, that, you know, and it was just like covered with like note, blah, 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 whatever Mm -hmm. number it was. And I'm sure that that's somewhere in, and again, some moldy file box. but it was the Commonwealth versus uh, De- uh, Dennis Porter. Um, and throughout the document, he's referred to as Porter. And um, so, and again, because I'm reading from this document, I'm, I usually try to give the victims like by their first name, but because mm-hmm. I'm reading from the document, so they will address uh, Chris Rickett as Rickett and Andrea Foy as Foy at, um, throughout the the court document. So they, the indictments were found and returned to the superior court 
uh, d- uh, department on October 15th, 1979, which uh, was, okay, I was just trying to make sure of the date. So same year, 1979, um, so the fall after the murders, the cases were tried before Judge J. O'Connor. The defense attorney was uh, Kimberly Homan. And Michael J. Traft, uh, the assistant district attorney, and Peter Grabler from the district attorney's office, um, they were for the Commonwealth. Um, so the evidence, they, ended, they summarize the evidence in, in the document, and they say that late in the morning of Monday, January 29th in 1979, Boston... De- police detectives responded to a radio call discovering and they discovered the bodies of Christine Ricketts age 15 and Andrea Foy age 17. They were lying together on a sidewalk on East Lenox street near the corner of Harrison Avenue in Boston. Uh, Ricketts body was inside a large blue duffel bag, which was not in my research before. So when I was skimming through this, I was just like, oh, they say that they were in the the trash bags. Yeah. In my other research, but this document, which I'm going to say is more factual because it's a court document. Yeah. Says that uh, Christine was in a large blue duffel bag and Andrea Foy was found in a green plastic trash bag and it was covered by a multicolored bedspread or like a furniture throw. So that's uh. um, some physical ev- evidence that they had with the bodies. Um, the medical examiner said that both, that the two girls had been strangled and set the time of death um, the morning or afternoon of the previous day. So Sunday, January 28th. He also said that Andrea had sustained injuries to her mouth, which was consistent with somebody being hit in, hit in the face with a fist. Um, mm. Both girls had uh, known the defendant, and um, they said approximately six months prior to their deaths um, that uh, his um, Dennis Porter was... Christine Ricketts boyfriend at the time and he lived with her Um, and they lived I I guess first they lived at the Milner Hotel where also Andrea Foy rented a room there as well Mm -hmm. and um, that's I'm assuming that's how these two girls know each other Mm -hmm. Um, so to go on with the document the defendant had been with ricketts uh intermittently throughout the evening of saturday january 27th the day before the coroner has said that they they uh died or were murdered Mm -hmm. um and it's more consistently with the early morning hours of sunday january 28th because it's reported that they left the cortez street apartments together him and or christine and dennis at at 3 30 a.m and they went to a disco at the combat zone and at this combat zone (laughs) took me a second i was like oh the what like that's the name okay, of the disco. Okay, but 1970s or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Like Bastard. discos were a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where they met with uh, Andrea Foy and Robert Harville. Um, 
Robert Harville and Andrea Foy were very good friends of Dennis and of Christine. They say in this document, it says the two uh, key witnesses, uh, Joseph Kevin Divins and Patricia Sly, testified that they observed Porter and Foy arguing at the disco. So, um, so that would be Dennis Porter and Andrea mm-hmm. Foy. So okay. not Christine, who is his girlfriend. It's they were arguing. Uh-huh. Um, they huh. say that Andrea was very upset um, that the four of them stayed at the disco until about 6.30 a.m. and then separated when they left. So Harville, Robert, who was with Andrea Foy, I don't know if they were dating or not. It doesn't say. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, he left saying he left alone and went to the subway. The two mm-hmm. girls, Andrea and Christine, they went across the street saying that they were going to have breakfast. And um, Dennis Porter initially headed in the opposite direction of the two girls. Um, and then at some point after that, Dennis Porter rejoined the two girls and the three of them took a cab back to the Cortez Street Apartments. Um, okay. At the trial, Porter testified that Christine changed her boots at the apartment and then the two girls left again and went to breakfast and he fell asleep. Um, but no witnesses have testified ever seeing the girls again after they went back home with him to the apartment. Um, he also testifies that he woke up at ele- around 11 a.m. Um, on Sunday. He began searching for them. Um, he also got his friend Harville, who was with Andrea that night, um, at the same time, and they were they were both searching for the girls. Um, and it says that the search for them lasted the late afternoon of the follow until the late afternoon of the following day. Um, he, uh, his, he said that his search intensified, uh, on Monday to the point where he and, um, Harville had communicated with the court and the police um, basically trying to figure out whatever they knew possibly mm-hmm. about two young girls going missing, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know. I mean, if let's say that be devil's advocate and he's telling the truth, it's he, it's just odd that someone who is not like he he's associated with them, but he's like searching so hard on his own for so long for almost a day and a half yeah, before saying like, that's like the lady doth protest too much. Like, yes, exactly. It's you, like, why are you inserting yourself into like investigate? You didn't yeah. Have yeah. Like something, something to hide. hide. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like that Mr. Uh, whatever his face is from Hannah. Zaner Brim. Oh, yes. Yeah. From last week's episode? Was that last week? Yeah. I think two weeks ago. Oh. By the time this comes out. If you oh, haven't yeah. listened to that episode, you should go back and listen to it. Yes. Um, that one, same thing. Like, just, yeah. just like, it's, it's the usual inserting yourself. Like, I just want to help. Like, I just want 
you know, to make sure that, you know, whatever to find them because I care about them so much. And then it's like they end up being the ones that actually, you know, committed the crime, which is terrible. Um, so Monday afternoon at some point, uh, Dennis Porter and Harville, they meet up with uh, a woman by the name of Sandra Spencer and they meet back at the combat zone and they get her to, to help search for the two girls, um, because she has a car. So Mm. then the three of them go to the Boston city hospital, um, Sandra Spencer, she testifies that Porter told her he was looking for, quote, two dead girls, end quote. And it's like, for fuck's sake, dude. Oh. Like, are you kidding? Like, why would you tell this? That's like a narcissist. Yeah, like, he he was, and then this whole time that, well, he testified, apparently, he he's making it seem like he was so distraught trying to yeah. find his girlfriend and trying to find his friends, but you know, and then he tells this other girl that's like helping them that he's looking for dead girls. It's like, okay. Yeah. Um, she also said that during that ride to the hospital, he stated, um, that he, that quote, his girls were dead. He kept calling them his girls. So creepy. Yeah. Um, so they go to the hospital there. Um, they ask the uh, hospital if there were two girls uh, that were brought in. Um, they didn't get an answer. Like there was no girls fitting their descriptions that were brought into the hospital, but they did go to the Southern mortuary, which was nearby. Harville testified that they went to the morgue because someone at the hospital told them that two unidentified bodies were brought into the morgue. So then they go to the morgue and they talk to the mortuary supervisor, Frank Grassa, and he testifies that Porter asked him to see the quote remains of the two females found in a sack on Harrison Avenue End Mm. quote. It's like, okay, how the fuck did you know that that's where they were found? Like, he's just, like, giving himself up at this point. Um, yeah. And uh, so Grassa, he says no, because he's just some random guy coming in to ask to, to see the remains of two girls that were just brought in. Um, so he refuses to let him see. Um, Porter, or Dennis Porter and Harville leave um, Sp- uh, Spencer, the girl that dropped, or let them use her car. They drop her at born Bourne's house. I don't know. It's just, they're just these names in the document. I could have copied and pasted half the name, but mm-hmm. that's, um, Bourne's house. And then they went back to the apartment of Denise Glenn, who is the mother of Porter's two children. So he's out oh searching for two dead girls. One of them is, which is his girlfriend that he's been living with. Um, but then he goes back to his baby mama who messy. Yeah. It's just kind of a, it's crazy. Um, so then Denise, she testifies that Porter told her that, um, Chris Ricketts was dead and that he knew because of the description given to him by the morgue attendant, but he never gave them the description of the girls at all. He told them no. What is he like trying to get ahead of this? I don't know. 
like it's maybe weird. there was you know maybe there's some evidence that he knows that is left on like who knows so then porter and harville they next go to joseph kevin divin's house and patricia sly who were at the disco with them the night before um so two or three days prior to the to the death of uh chris and andrea divins um says that he slapped that he slapped chris in the face during an argument and then porter confronts him at the apartment and demands to know where Ricketts was and why he hit her. Um, They had a brief altercation and it ended with Dennis Porter fleeing the apartment on foot and then Divins like running after him. So then Divins then uh, testifies that the two finally stopped and made peace. Um, But then Porter, Dennis Porter tells him that quote, my bitches are dead. End quote. And it's like, what? Like, this is just like, I feel like I have whiplash from this story. I'm yeah. like, this is just absolutely insane. Um, this is a lot. This is way more than I oh, <laughs> really? anybody. This is literally just because I stumbled across the, the this court document. And then yeah. I was just like, well, let me find this website. Or so then I go to the website and I'll cite the website right now. Let me just... So two of the, one of the websites is called masscases.com. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I believe this information that I'm currently reading is from. And then I found another one that was law.justia.com. Mm-hmm. And that was another case, which I'll read in a couple minutes. And the only reason why I found that one was because I was like, well, I'll just go to this masscases.com and put in everybody's name. And oh, see if a case, po- a uh, like idea. case, yeah. uh, court documents pop up, and nothing popped up about any of the girls besides Chris Ricketts, Andrea yeah. Foy, and um, and my next one, which is for Karen Prater. Mm-hmm. Um, but not that's all I could find. But that was like literally last minute, so I was like, "Well, I don't want to leave <laughs> this stuff out, so I'm just gonna copy and paste." So yeah. thank you to those two websites for. Um, you know, supplying these uh, court documents for me to kind of fill in some of the holes here. Um, so then uh, Divins, uh, he describes, uh, he says that Porter describes the, to him the injuries that happened to Foy's mouth. Remember they said that the, oh, yeah, with the, hitting, that she hit was hit. Face. Yeah. So he describes like verbatim what he he says, and it matches the injuries that were on um, Andrea Foy's body. So the police investigation, this is the only thing I'm hearing of a police investigation for this case at all, other than like what's in this Mm -hmm. court, court document. But so the they investigated uh porter and all the residents he had he had a a a bunch of residents i guess obviously he had a a, he had two children with another woman and he was staying at the milner hotel so that led him them there and they interviewed ruby murray she was a chambermaid um at this hotel 
A chambermaid. Chambermaid. Wow. That's that the... was still in use. Yeah, then? I guess so. Well, I mean, <laughs> we're we're talking about a time where things are still fucking segregated. Like, so yeah. it's like this is. Okay. But it's not ancient history. True. <laughs> That's true. Very true. I take it back. Um, <laughs> so she is the one who uh, links uh, Dennis Porter to the blue duffel bag. Ooh. So she's the one that's like, yeah, that's the guy with the blue duffel bag. And it's like, well, that's how Christine was found. Mm-hmm. Um, he denies the, the ever having a duffel bag, a blue duffel bag. And the bedspread was obviously from the hotel room. So um, in February uh, 1980, he was incarcerated in the Charles Street Jail awaiting trial um, and also Divins, he was, uh, also incarcerated there and at the two of them had met in jail and wrote a statement basically, uh, like he wrote a statement is what it's saying uh-huh. it, that basically d- damaged Porter, um, and his trial. And he was given, um, it was given to the a grand jury, um, and at the trial for Divins, he claimed that he had done so in the response to the threats that Porter had made to him. And according to Divins, Porter had uh, told him that told him that a fire at his apartment a year earlier was intended uh, as a warning for him and Sly to not testify in his trial. So there was just a lot of stuff going on, but he was convicted of the murder of these two women. Um, which, I mean, it does go against my theory that there's like, this was done by the same person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also couldn't find if like Dennis Porter was black or not. So I'm like, okay, does that, mm. because then if we're, if we're looking at a serial okay, killer type again. situation where they're killing black women and that, uh will lead me to the second court document that I found. Um, and that was from lawjust.justia.com. Um, and this, uh, for Karen, uh, Prater's case. Um, if you don't remember Karen Prater, uh, she was the one that was found dead, um, in Franklin park. And, uh, she was going to bring her 75 year old grandfather to the store and she was found beaten and stabbed and left behind the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ke- Kenneth Spann, he was arrested in relation to her death. Um, and the indictment was, uh, returned to the superior, uh, court on May 25th, 1979. The case was tried before uh, Judge Jay Lappin and um, the defendant, the attorney for the defense was Willie J. Davis and the Commonwealth was represented by Jeremiah P. Sullivan. And mm-hmm. basically they do the same thing. They uh, briefly um, list the evidence they have against Kenneth Um, And they say that the victim's body was found in Franklin Park, Boston, in the early morning of February 5th, 1979. 
she had received a massive blow to the head with a blunt object and died of the stab wounds, many of which were infected uh, or inflicted by uh, great force. (laughs) Sorry. Infected stab wounds. But stab wounds that were inflicted with great great force force are equally equally, bad. Yes. Um, And Dean Richardson testified on February 3rd while he was the defendant at the defendant's apartment, the, uh, Kenneth, who is the defendant, said that he had killed a woman and that her body was in the lower in, was in the lower inside hallway outside the defendant's ha- apartment. Uh, Richardson, um, the uh, witness, okay, so Richardson, he went up to the upper hallway and looked down over the banister and saw the woman's body down there. So then on February 4th, the, de- the defendant asked him- Richardson to help him get rid of the body. And he was like, fuck that. No, I'm not helping you do that. Um, on right. April 10th, he uh, Richardson, who he said that he became fearful of the defendant, he said that he reported the February 3rd incident to the police and later that di- day identified the picture of the vi- victim as the person who uh, he saw in the hallway, um, who's Mm -hmm. Karen Prater. Um, Also in his testimony, he, there was evidence that there was traces of blood of the victim of the victims found in the hallway, as well as in the defendant's uh, car. And her injuries were consistent with a knife used, uh, used and owned by Kenneth span so it's just like there's a there's not much he can do to to say that he didn't do this but um uh other evidence that was found was there was um uh impressions of a partial footprint of a sneaker on the victim's coat found near her body um and that uh partial impression matched the sneaker owned by uh kenneth they, there was also a blood-stained gold ring similar to the one worn by the victim, but they uh, it wasn't found near her body at all. That was found under a rug in the defendant's bedroom. Um, the uh, defendant had scratches on his neck, and he was wearing a Band-Aid uh, over it. So on February 2nd, the date of the victim... Uh, on the day of the... Uh, the day that she disappeared. So... Um, they have witnesses that testify that he had a, had scratches and a bandaid on. So, Mm. so they, uh, the defense tries to argue that the judge should have dismissed the indictment altogether, uh, because they, the prosecution improperly denied the defendant of probable, a probable cause cause hearing, um, and that's listed here in this document as well. We're, I'll have all of these linked it's so that, you know, if you do want to go back and read the full document, you can. Um, but the judge threw that out and was just like, no, there was a proper, like, the chain of custody of all this stuff was, was properly um, brought, brought to the court. And there's, there's no overturning this indictment at all. 
The judge at one point told the jury, quote, now we use the word of reasonable and the choice of that word is not by accident because if an unreasonable doubt or a mere possibility of innocence should be deemed enough to prevent conviction, that practically everyone charged with a crime would then go free, end quote. Whoa. (laughs) So um, the... Uh, so then, you know, there's no merit for the defendant's argument that the jury's verdict was less than unanimous. The uh, foreman reported a verdict of guilty of murder in the second degree. The judge granted the defendant's motion that the jur- jury be pulled. And after all nine jurors said guilty, the 10th ju- the jury answered, I s- quote, I say he is guilty with reservations, end quote. Oof. So the judge asked asked immediately, quote, what was your answer, madam? Not guilty or guilty? Uh-huh. And the jury answered, the juror answered guilty. So the defense counsel raised no objection at that point because she's making, even though she said that she was, yeah. un, you know. Um, so then the judge is like, listen, the 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 jury's um, verdict is unanimous, um, and he, uh, the defendant, I forgot his name already, Kenneth, <laughs> Kenneth Spann, um, was convicted of murder in second degree. Um, and then I'm going to pass this along to Devin to finish up All with. Right. Well, some of these I don't have dates for. Because mm-hmm. I couldn't find them, which is crazy. Yeah. I shouldn't say crazy. Wild. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first uh, woman on my half, I guess, her name was Darlene Rogers. And she was found in Washington Park mm-hmm. on April 14th. Um, and she had been stabbed multiple times and was naked from the waist down. Mm. And she was 22 years old. And then two weeks later, on April 28th, Lois Hood Nesbitt was found in her bed, tied up and strangled by a radio cord. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she was 31. And there was a conviction in this case. uh, And the man who was found guilty of her murder was named Richard Strother, Mm -hmm. who was also 31, who was her building superintendent. Oh, God. I know. How terrifying is that i don't want to think about that (laughs) i know again i couldn't find there were there was some like um uh, things online that people were saying they lived at the same address but it was uncertain if they lived together like if he was Mm -hmm. her partner or if he was just the superintendent so again the details around this are really murky motive don't know why but he got in without force so uh, you know, again, yeah. just really kind of frustratingly under, mm-hmm. like, re- reported and discussed. Yeah. Um, so the next victim is a little bit different, which I think is what, to me, bursts the serial kill- killer bubble. Okay. Um, uh, her name was Valeric Holiday, and she was 19 years old, and she was actually found still alive. 
What? So she was alive and conscious when the police came to her apartment. I don't know who called the police, if it was her, if it was a neighbor. Mm -hmm. Um, But she had been stabbed multiple Mm -hmm. times. So she was able to give a statement and the name of the person who stabbed her because she knew him. Oh, okay. And she said his name was Eugene B. Conway. Um, And Wikipedia calls him an 18-year-old man, which I thought was an oxymoron. Yeah. Um, And the police went and arrested him that night and, Mm -hmm. like, very tidy, done deal, but Valeric ended up uh, passing away the next morning because of her wounds. But... So that makes me feel like maybe it's not a serial killer and maybe it's just the... I mean, there's so many things that go more towards like this was just a spree of killings done by different people in that same neighborhood. Like it could have just been, you know, a coincidence. But every time I was like, what if, you know, like, you know, I always like to explore the what if. Well, it just makes it feel like more... Mm -hmm. Like the fact that there's twelve people that were murdered randomly. Yeah. I guess I guess a lot of these people actually knew the people that murdered them, which mm-hmm. is the most common yeah. thing. Right. Yeah. But the fact that it was so prolific at this time mm-hmm. is terrifying. So I understand like the the want to say like, Oh, it was a serial killer and it was one person because that's more easily contained and yeah. it's not a societal issue that yeah. we're up against. Mm-hmm. Um so after Valeric uh, was murdered, um, the tenth woman, tenth black woman murdered mm-hmm. was Sandra Bulware, I believe mm-hmm. is how you pronounce it. Okay. Um, and she had only lived in Boston for about a year at that point, having moved from Connecticut the year prior, 1978. But her sister hadn't heard from her for three days, so she reported her missing. Ugh. And then... Sandra's body was eventually found naked and burned like that other one that you said. I can't remember Ooh, who, yeah. who was burned. Um, that was, she um, was that was Desiree Dennis uh, Etheridge. She was the one that she was burned. Okay. On Fellow Street in Dorchester. Okay. So, okay, that makes more sense because um, uh, so Sandra was found because she was found in like a grass lot near mm-hmm. a YMCA that was still on fire at 5 a.m. Oh. oh my God. So as people were going to, you know, work out or if they were staying there and leaving, they noticed it in yeah. the lot. Mm-hmm. And there was a conviction in this case, a man named Osborne Jimmy Shepard, who was aged 55. So I wonder if maybe those two. Yeah. Desiree and Sandra were related. That Mm -hmm. the methodology is very similar. Yeah. Um, And then the final black woman who was murdered was named Bobby Jean Graham. Mm -hmm. Um, And her cause of death was, quote, a lacerated liver caused by multiple blows to her midsection with a blunt object. So. God. Yeah. So Bobby Jean was found in an alleyway by a man driving by, which uh-huh. I'm like, how? Yeah. I don't know if, if I was driving by and wasn't looking for something, if I would have been able to find mm-hmm. a body, mm-hmm. unless it was like out there, you know, yeah. maybe she like was very just in obvious. the middle of the yeah. alley. Um, and there was a witness mm-hmm. um, 
because her body was found in the morning and there was a witness for the night before where it was another woman i couldn't find her name yeah. who said she noticed a walk a couple walking towards the alley mm-hmm. and the woman of the couple seemed to be intoxicated so the man picked her up and carried her to the alley mm-hmm. um and bobby jean was found the next morning with blood on her body and indentations of a heel on her chest oh. so i think he literally just like beat her and kicked her while she was down until she died oh and the blunt God. object was his shoe yeah um Jesus. so i didn't i don't know i don't know if he was ever found yeah. or if he maybe he dumped her and somebody else came along i don't really mm-hmm. know yeah um so those were all the um black women the 11 black women that mm-hmm. were murdered at this time and the reason why we're having so, such difficulty finding coverage on this, on these murders, is because the Boston Globe was the only news source that was consistently covering yeah. the murders and the only ones that were connecting them. Mm. It was their theory that connected it and found the pattern of, like, this is the neighborhood, this is what's happening, all the victims okay. are similar demographic. Yeah. Um, so I think that... So I'm. I don't really agree with the serial killer theory. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I talked myself out of it as I was saying, <laughs> doing, you know, yeah, my side of it. So like, I uh, yeah. But I think that there's something going on here because mm-hmm. I don't. I think it's just a a a, a mindset or like mm-hmm. some plague in yeah. this area that is full of tension and racial tension and whether you know the people the killers were black or white or anything whatever Mm -hmm. i think whoever you are in that fight you have a lot of pent-up frustration and aggression Mm -hmm. and like obviously you know white people have been proven to be very racially Mm. motivated killers black men i think have a lot of feelings of Ugh, this is gonna get yeah <laughs> i don't know if i can say this but i think that there's um frustration and everything and you know i can't imagine feeling like what they're feeling moving through the world but i do know that like throughout history black women have been treated as like the lowest of the low yeah so when when a man needs power mm-hmm. and takes it out on a woman it's yeah. It's a way to, like, regain feeling powerlessness that is not correct and true, and I don't condone it. But I feel like that's kind of what was going on here. Mm-hmm. And I think if there was more coverage on it and more yeah. people understanding and more people able to discuss it openly. And just paying even, attention, too. Like, a, I feel like yeah. a lot of these things that I, you know, was researching, it's just, like, the, there was, like, one or two sentences about some of these women you know, mm-hmm. or what happened involved, you know, and it's just yeah. like, and that's, that's even if it's one or two sen- sentences. So I think right. like these were just like, oh, there's just another, just another, you know, black girl that, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, met her, met the worst day in her life and okay, let's move on with ours. You know, yeah. like it just, yeah. Ugh, and even, sickening. even if it wasn't like the theory and discussion, whatever saved all the lives, having eyeballs in that area would have discouraged people yeah just like to let people know that they're looking Mm -hmm. and you can't just like 
not everybody got away with it, but like yeah. a lot of them did. A lot of these are unsolved. Solved, yeah. Yeah. Um so this is where a woman named Barbara Smith comes in. So Barbara is a queer feminist scholar, an activist, a critic, lecturer, author, publisher mm-hmm. of Black Feminist Thought. Um she in her youth attended uh Dr. King's speeches when she was in high school. She mm-hmm. met civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hammer and she was really inspired to become active in community matters. Um Barbara attended Mount Holyoke College, one of the few black students there at the time and became very involved in activist groups protesting the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And then Barbara ended up moving to Boston after getting a master's from the University of Pittsburgh. And in Boston, Barbara founded the Boston chapter of the National Black Feminist Organization. But the Boston chapter didn't get a lot of support from the national organization. Plus, Barbara began to realize that her views on things were more radical than like the sanctioned NBFO ideology. Mm -hmm. So her chapter split off and rebranded. And so they they renamed themselves, which uh, their name they picked was inspired by a successful military operation that Harriet Tubman led in South Carolina. And they called themselves the Combahee River Collective. Hmm. Um, And the group's objective was class consciousness, sexuality affirming black feminist um, ideology, recognizing lesbianism as a legitimate identity and emphasizing intersectionality of racial gender, heterosexist, and class operations in the lives of women of color. So, like, all the same stuff we're talking about today. Yeah. Um, Wikipedia states, quote, like other black feminist organizations at this time, Kombahi articulated that many of the concerns specific to black women, from anger with black men for dating and marrying white women, (laughs) to uh, internal conflict over skin color, hair texture, and facial features, to the difference between the mobility of white and black women, also attacking the myth of the black matriarch and stereotypical portrayals of black women in pop culture. Um, The collective also worked on issues such as reproductive rights, rape, prison reform, sterilization abuse, violence against women, health care, and racism within the white women's movement. And it was deliberately structured to avoid hierarchy and give members a sense of equality. Um, And Barbara cited this structure as essential to ensuring that black feminism survived as a radical movement. So, again, all this stuff we're seeing with, like, the criticisms of white feminism and how it's not really feminist unless it's intersectionality intersectional and then you also have um the pro-black movement Mm -hmm. uh with capital p capital b pro-black movement coming in where those have those specific pillars where like the center of it is the black family so they are not Mm -hmm. pro interracial relationships and everything which i understand yeah um in that terms like you know an entire culture has been under attack for hundreds of years so of course you want to protect it Mm -hmm. um and colorism within the community and everything. So they're they're literally, like, getting yeah. it all. And it seems, I mean, maybe it seems radical to uh, people now. But yeah. to me, I'm like, this seems like mm-hmm. run-of-the-mill kind yeah. of stuff. And in 1979, it's like, what? Yeah. yeah. You want all men to die. It's like, yeah. Oh, no. Well, no. I'm, I don't yeah. know what we're talking about. But. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay, so all that being said, Barbara yeah. and the Combahee River Collective saw what was happening mm-hmm. in Roxbury 
And they stepped in and demanded that these string of murders be recognized as racialized and sexualized acts of violence against black women. Because mm-hmm. there were a couple of mm-hmm. these victims that were, had been assaulted yeah. as well. Um, so they wrote and distributed a pamphlet in, in spring, so still sort of bef- as it was go- ongoing, yeah. um, titled Six, Blacks, Six Black Women, Why Did They Die? And um, the pamphlet, this is a quote, the pamphlet itself focused specifically on the murders which were not being covered extensively by the police or media. The collective held that these murders were both racist and sexist because not only were the people who were murdered black, but they were also women, and Mm. that they were killed because they were black women who were systematically undervalued in American society. So that's kind of what I was trying to say in terms of like the attitude around um, Mm -hmm. everything that I totally bungled and i'm sure i didn't say it right at all it just brings me back to that quote i don't know who said it so i can't really you know give them credit but like racism isn't like coming back it's just being filmed now right and i'm sure if we had the coverage or technology that we have now back in the 70s it would be like the same or worse (laughs) you know like so it's like now so it's just so on april it's like i'm tired of having that conversation too like i'm so exhausted from that it's just i don't know yeah um on april 1st 1979 when there were still only six victims Mm -hmm. um Thousands gathered to march in memorial of the slain women and in protest of them not being given the attention they deserved. And Barbara and the Kumbahi River Collective organized that march. And, uh, mm-hmm. of course, during that march, there were men that were marching that tried to co-opt Ugh. the movement, black men, and... Um, trying to make it less about like that women were specifically targeted and making it only about racism. But the Combahee River Collective really mm-hmm. um, maintained that the cornerstone of this was that they were black women. Okay. Uh, and they, they didn't, they were very unhappy that people tried to erase that yeah. part of the narrative. Yeah. And it literally wasn't until the 11th victim at, Oh, in the timeline, this was the 11th out of 12 victims. Yeah. That it started getting national attention because the 11th victim, a woman named Faye Polner, was a white woman. Oh, of course. Yeah. And even today, like, God, like, Faye's murder remains unsolved and it's absolutely tragic. Mm -hmm. And her sister is still working to this day to find out what happened. But... To this day, like in 2015 or something, somebody did a story about Faye, a mm. news outlet. I don't remember who. I'll link it in on our Instagram. But it, it's like there's still – and the police are reinvestigating, going back to the places that Faye was mm-hmm. and, all this, and all this stuff. And it's like it's still – it's still happening where it's mm-hmm. like, yes, absolutely do that. Absolutely yeah. try to find – what is happening what happened to Faye exactly like it's not but also try to find out what happened to all these other other girls yeah it's the missing missing white woman syndrome syndrome. yeah yeah it's like we're not asking for like white women to not get attention we're just asking for equal attention for everyone 
Exactly. Like, it, it just looks like the whole fucking all lives matter bullshit. Like, no one's saying that not everybody matters. Yeah. But you're not the one hurting right now. Yeah. So, and you know what? Shut up. The thing is, is that if Gwendolyn and Karen and all the, the, uh, these other women, if their murders had mm-hmm. been put out there the way that they should have been, mm-hmm. Faye's life may have been saved. Uh, yeah. Yep. And that's that's literally where it's like if you take care of the women of color, it literally helps everyone. everyone. It benefits yeah. everyone. Mm-hmm. Whether like instead of this system of white supremacy that literally only benefits white people. Yeah. Like it's out. I just don't understand the, the so disconnect. Yeah. Um and I hope that some like we find mm-hmm. answers about what happened to Faye. Like I hope we find answers about the seven other women who didn't get a conviction here yeah yep um it just like murder and like these crimes just have Mm -hmm. such a ripple effect it's like not just taking one person's life it's ruining Mm -hmm. families it's ruining generations it's Mm -hmm. affecting the community it's breaking trust like if people don't feel safe yeah. to go out in your community it's it's ruining the lives of the people that commit the murders their mm-hmm. families too yeah mm-hmm. it's just like and then the prison ruins everything even more mm-hmm. and it's like like why was this happening and in this case it's because society literally perpetuates objectification and sexualization of black women and doesn't give a shit about yeah. changing anything mm-hmm and I just, like, this, these string of killings and murders just, it feels like the, the theme underlying all of them is that, like, these women were theirs to be killed. Like, this is, feels yeah. like the attitude that these men have. But yeah. it's like, black women don't exist for others, mm-hmm. not for other people's pleasure not to inflict pain upon Mm -mm. not to save anybody or teach anybody or be strong or anything Mm -hmm. they exist for the same reason that everybody exists which is to figure it out for themselves yeah and to just be themselves and have opportunity to do whatever the fuck they want but for some reason Mm -hmm. white supremacy we there's so much i mean yeah i mean there's so much pressure to just be mm -hmm. the perfect person otherwise like this feels like the only other way i'm being very exaggerative but it just it just really it it feels like there's two ways that society accepts black women you're either michelle obama or you're on a Mm -hmm. list of Roxbury murders Mm mm-hmm and there's no, there, and it's crazy. There's no, it's no in between and there's no like, you know, you're either, but it's like Michelle Obama was treated that way until she wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's just, it just blows my mind that there's anyone that can have the capacity to look at, you know, someone like Michelle Obama or someone like me or someone like the next black girl that walks by the street, you know, like they mm-hmm. can think that that person deserves less, deserves to be treated like trash and they deserve everything. And it just, that mentality is just so 
foreign to me and just literally doesn't make sense. And anyone that backs that or tries to defend that and defend that with, well, I'm not racist. I do this and I do that is all a part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And if we start treating people like people, regardless of what color they are, or the st- their status, their paycheck, their job, their how many kids they have, whether they don't have kids, whether they want kids, whether you know, and it's just mm-hmm. like we can group everyone into um, the others, you know, very easily because they yeah. don't look or act or do or think the same way we do. And you're, and it just doesn't make sense that you feel like you have the freedom to think freely, however you want, however you want to live your life, but. Every, everyone else that around you has to respect those boundaries or not boundaries yeah. the, the respect the you know your well, it's power yeah it's people want power and that's why white people are so threatened right mm. now because it's that thing it's that mm. quote you've, we've seen going around where equality looks like oppression when you've been privileged yeah you know yeah and it's like Oh, that's such a powerful, yeah. 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 Um, There was one other group at this time that helped sort of get some sort of action taken. Mm -hmm. Um, That was, they were the Coalition for Women's Safety. They're an organization of Bostonian women who worked to combat, Mm -hmm. I always want to say, like, (laughs) pronounce it. Incorrectly. Yeah. Um, they worked to fight, let's mm-hmm. just say that, uh, the violence against women in response to these murders. And they established two courses of action. The first mm-hmm. was to educate the community about the matter of violence against women, which is what we've been talking yeah. about. And the other was to examine licensing and regulations of taxi drivers. Oh. Which was in response to a high number of assaults in taxi cabs, which, again, we're seeing with this, like, civil litigation case against um, yeah. Uber and Lyft right now. Mm-hmm. And members of the coalition also coordinated support groups for community af- members affected by the murders, which yeah. great. Like I never hear about any of that kind of stuff. Um, they held workshops on firearm safety and self-defense for women. Wow. Just like, yes, teach them how to use a gun. Mm-hmm. If we're, if we're going to have guns, Oh yeah. Let's all get, let's all be armed. Yeah even the playing field. Mm-hmm. Um, and they established a trust fund for the families of the murdered women. And they educated workers and health services on assisting the needs of Latinx victims of assault and groups who traveled within the communities to talk about issues of security. So they did a lot of uh-huh. outreach and everything, which is really great. Um, and I, in the time between this year of murders Mm -hmm. and you know now it's sort of just kind of become um urban legend almost at this Mm. at this point where i think people in the neighborhood kind of know about it but don't really know the details and just the thing that happened and everybody sort of like moves on with their own life um but in 2018 a roxbury artist named kendra hicks um, decided to create a series of installations honoring all of the victims of the roxbury murder murders um and she called it the estuary project mm. and each installation was placed where each of the victims were found or mm-hmm. as close to as possible yeah um hicks said quote 
There's a sense of despair and urgency to how we respond to the issues we're experiencing now, such as gentrification, police brutality, gun violence, school closures. The purpose of the installation is to remind people that at one time in this neighborhood, we've experienced things that felt like the end of the world, but people mm. came together then to devise solutions. Mm. And the word estuary signifies where a river stream meets the ocean tide. And in okay. this project symbolizes how the endings of the women's lives in Roxbury can serve as quote entryways to the creation of a new world, according mm. to the page, the Kickstarter okay. page. Um, and each installation was life-sized with the tallest being an eight foot tall silhouette of a woman. Mm. Um, other installations were a meditation box made of wood that people were able to sit inside and mm -hmm. reflect on yeah. um, the murders. And another is located in a tree that overlooks the spot where one of the women was murdered. Mm -hmm. They're all mixed media and were integrated into their locations. And we'll include some images on our Instagram mm -hmm. um, if you want to take a look. And then... Um, Kendra said, quote, one of the centerpieces of the installations are flowers because from what I've learned, life blooms in unlikely places, which yeah. I thought was really lovely. Um, and a really lovely tribute to yeah. the history of her town. Now, we talk a lot about what we can do and how to take action and the problems mm -hmm. in this case that still plague our society today so if you listeners want to do your part i have two sources of action that you can take one is to call your senators and demand that they ratify the violence against women act which was repealed and is crazy make what? that go the crazy yeah. just call them all you need to say is like hey this is devin i'm from california i'm from los angeles whatever I want you to ratify the Violence Against Women Act. Hang up. Send an email. Yeah. Seriously, it's super easy. The other thing is to call them and demand that they pass the Anti-Lynching Act that Rand Paul is currently blocking. Mm, of course. Which, can you believe there is a... Yeah. I no, I can't. Not an Anti-Lynching Act? <laughs> I really can't. Like, those oh. two things should not even be... Oh, God. A question, yeah. and yet somehow they are. So there's two very easy things that we can do right now to make sure that this shit doesn't keep happening. Yep. And that there are systems in place in a broken system, but regardless, that are supposed to protect women of color. So let's do that. And let us know if you do it, too. And you can do it every day. <laughs> or you can send an automatic email every day. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why this one was so difficult yeah. for us. Yeah, this was a really tough one. I I just you know, I think we say this every time. It's like we are the world we live in does not need to be this way. Like right. As tough as we think it is, the only reason why it it's tough is because there's people that are trying to make it that way. Mm -hmm. They want it to be hard for people to think that it's going to be hard to, you know, systematically change the way that our country treats people of color. Mm -hmm. And it's not. 
it's a very easy decision. It's the easiest decision I think that anybody will ever make is there is no room for hate anywhere. And if you do, the hatred just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you pass it down to people, your family, your children, who are going to keep perpetuating this type of hate and pain on people that don't deserve it. These women did not deserve to die. These women do not deserve to be forgotten. Thank you.